Now, Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 56, and you can find that on page 865 and 866 in the church Bibles. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 56. Extraordinary accounts from Luke's eyewitness testimony. Remember, Luke writes to give us certainty, extraordinary accounts that tell us about the Lord Jesus. Luke 8, 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. 
Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Thank you, Robin, for reading for us. It's an astonishing passage, isn't it? And uh, full of action and drama and emotion. Um, I'd encourage you to keep it in front of you in the Bible as we go through it. Just to, We're going to work our way through the stories. Um, it will help you to see it on the page as we, as we do that. Um, but let's pray before we begin. Luke tells us at the start of his gospel that he wrote it so that we may have certainty concerning the things we've been taught so, Lord God, our Father, we ask this morning that you would make us certain, certain about the Lord Jesus, his goodness, his character, his power, and all that he has done. Cause us to wonder at him this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, let me begin with a story. It's a fairly well-known story. You may have heard it before. I believe it's a true story. It's about a man called Paul Morphy. Uh, this guy lived in Richmond in Virginia in the United States in about in the late 19th century. 
One evening, he was visiting a friend's house for dinner. And whilst there, he saw a picture hanging on the wall. And it was a painting by a German artist called Moritz Retsch. And it's a painting of a chess game. And the picture looks like this. It's got the chessboard set out on a table in the middle of the picture, and then one player on either side. And this intrigued him. It caught his attention because Morphy was an excellent chess player. In the painting, on one side is a young man, and on the other side is the devil. And the young man looks miserable. He's in desperate trouble in the game. It looks like checkmate for him is a certainty. Of course, that's the point of the analogy. The, the devil has the man cornered with no way out. He's about to lose everything, his life and his soul are forfeit. But as Morphy stood there and he studied the painting, after a few minutes he turned to his host and he said, I believe that I can take the young man's game and win. Impossible, came the reply. Not even you, Morphy, can retrieve that game and win. But Morphy was certain there was a way out. And so what they did was they got a chessboard out and they got it out on the table and they laid out the pieces as it was in the painting and sure enough, Morphy played his way out of defeat. It turned out that what had seemed like checkmate, what had seemed like certain defeat to everyone in the hands of a master could in fact be turned to victory. There was a way out after all. Now why tell that story. Well, we have before us this morning Luke's record of four incredible incidents in the life of Jesus Christ. And often what you would do is you'd preach each one of these incidents one by one. Uh, it's good to do that, and we'd often do that, but we're going to take them all together. And when you take them all together, this is what you notice. That each of these people that Jesus encounters are in desperate situations. They each reach a point in their lives where they seem to have got to the end of the road, where all their options are closed down, where there's nowhere to turn, no one to help them, nothing they can do to escape. Each one's in a moment where they are helpless and hopeless, a real moment of despair and distress. In turn, we're gonna see imminent disaster, demonic oppression, disease, and death. Each person's like the young man in the painting. The forces of evil and the effects of this fallen world seem to have them in checkmate. It's almost game over. They each get to a point where there seems to be no way out. But then the master turns up on the scene. Now, before we crack on and look at these, let me just tell you where we are in the book. We're in a section between two key events. The first of those is in chapter 5, where Jesus calls 12 disciples uh, to follow him and to obey him. And then the second key event is in chapter 9, which we'll get to next week, where Jesus sends the 12 disciples out on mission. He sends them to proclaim, to preach the good news to the people. Now, if you were here last week, you heard Roger explain that the beginning of chapter 8 
is Jesus telling the disciples what to expect when they go out on mission, the responses that they'll get from preaching God's word and the message of salvation and forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Now, as this section immediately follows that one, it would make sense then that that Jesus is still training his disciples. He's still equipping them for the mission that he's going to send them on. And so a good question to ask, I think, is, well, what is it that Jesus wants them to learn here? What's he teaching them? Let me give you what I think the answer to that question is right up front, and we'll see it throughout uh, the stories. Here's what he's teaching them that Jesus really does have the power to save people, any people from any situation. That he can save people from their sins, but not only that, he really and truly does have the power to save people from the effects of sin, from the effects of the fall, from disaster, from demons, from disease and from death. And the disciples, they need to be really certain of that before they go out with the good news. And therefore, so do we. So let's take each of these incidents in turn. And you'll see uh, on the service sheet, they're there just um, outlined for you and some space to make notes. First of all, verse 22 to 25, where we see Jesus save from disaster. It's a famous story in the life of Jesus, the stilling of the storm on Galilee. Let's read from verse 22. One day he, that's Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. The disciples were experienced sailors, they'd been fishermen for decades, they knew what they were doing, they'd have made this trip many times And so Jesus' request that they sail to the other side is really no big deal. It's well within their capabilities. And it begins calm, but then it quickly turns, as I understand it can, on the Sea of Galilee. And it must have been some storm, therefore, to scare them like this. Wind and rain lashing the boat, the boat pitching and rolling in the waves, water coming on board, the ship starting to go under. Serious danger, events have spiralled out of their control. They're at the mercy of the storm on the edge of disaster. But all is not lost, for the one who made the wind and the waves is in the belly of the boat. We're surprised to find him sleeping, but I think it just shows his calm control of things. They wake him and they utter their despairing cry. Verse 24, Master, Master, we're perishing. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And they ceased. And there was a calm. It's just so easy for him. He truly is the master, the commander of creation. See, the violence of the fallen creation pitched against humanity is no match for his power. And the disciples, well, they were afraid before, but now they're even more afraid as they've seen what Jesus has done. They look at him in fear and wonder, and they ask then, who is this? 
that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Now we know the only answer to that question. He must be the God of creation for who else could have that kind of power? But there's more going on in this story. Remember how he said that Jesus is in this section, he's training his disciples before he sends them out on mission. So I wonder if you noticed whose idea it was to sail across the lake that day. It's Jesus' idea. Now Jesus later proves that he's God in the flesh when he calms the storm. And and so therefore we must conclude that as God, he knew that the storm was coming. And therefore he deliberately leads them into the storm. Now why would he do that? The only possible answer, I think, is found in the question that he asks them. Where is your faith? See, this is what Jesus is teaching them. This is what he's seeking to create in them. True faith that in the face of danger and disaster, they can trust him. They can trust him that he has the power to save them and that it is not out of his control. There is perhaps a sense of accusation in the disciples when they woke him as if Jesus didn't know or perhaps didn't even care that they were in peril. At that moment, they didn't trust him. But you can bet that this was a lesson that they never forgot. See, having gone through the storm and been saved, they now know that no matter how bad it gets, and it will get really bad for them, Jesus has the power to rescue them in one way or another, that if they face a storm in this life, it's his call and he is with them in it. And as we go out on the mission that Christ has called us to, well, that is certainly something that we need to know too. That's the first story. Now onto the second story, verse 26 to 39, where we see Jesus saved from demons. Now, as we come to this one, let me just say, I once taught this story to a youth group and I had probably the strongest negative reaction that I've ever had uh, in ministry. And it was the pigs that did it. Um, this girl was a vegan. She was big into animal welfare. And she could not understand why Jesus sends the pigs over the cliff to their death. Now, I've got a lot of sympathy for the pigs. Um, I like pigs too, for perhaps different reasons than uh, she did. But, but my response was, I guess, that look, well, at least it shows us that Jesus cares far more about one man than he does about thousands of pigs. I'm not sure that won her over, but it's true. But I was saddened by her response because it demonstrated that she had completely missed the point. Because what we have in this story is the most amazing demonstration of the power and compassion of Jesus Christ to save the most wretched of men from the grip of evil. And not just that, to bring about the total transformation and peace into his life. First then, let's just look at the desperate situation of this man, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. That's Gentile territory. 
When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he'd worn no clothes, and he'd not lived in a house but among the tombs. We read just a couple of verses later that many a time the demons had seized him and that the people of the town, presumably to protect him from hurting himself, kept him under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. The Bible's clear that personal spiritual evil beings exist and that they can exert influence over and even control to an extent a human personality. Now it does not mean that every distressed person has a demon. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that some people do. And this man, well he's the most severe case of that. In verse 30 Jesus asks him a question. What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Now just picture this man in your minds. He's naked. He's living in the graveyard. He's fierce, driven mad by demonic power. Is there a more distressing condition for a human being? Is there a more wretched man on the planet? I don't think so. Here is someone as fallen as man can be. Utterly debased and degraded, alienated from humanity, from society. He's out of his mind and he's dangerous because he's dominated by demonic power. No one can help him and probably no one wants to because they fear him. But look at Jesus. Verse 28. When the man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. See, the demon speaking through the man, he knows who Jesus is, and is afraid of him. Why? Verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. See, Jesus has absolute power over evil. Even a legion of demons fears him and must obey him. The demons beg him not to hurl them into the abyss to eternal judgment, and, and so Jesus sends them into the pigs who then destroy themselves. But look at the man. The man is set free. He's saved. To the herdsmen, they flee in terror. And when they return with the crowd, they find this most wretched and distressed and oppressed man. Yet he's now none of those things anymore. Verse 35. They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. You know what this means? That there is no one too far gone for Jesus. 
Do you believe that? That there is no one out of his reach, no one he cannot save. A legion of demons can't stop Jesus from saving the ones he's come for. Isn't that good news? And doesn't that give us confidence as we go out on mission to proclaim the good news about him? Jesus can save anyone. Now, remarkably, the crowd here rejects Jesus. He's just too much for them. They can't take it. They ask him to leave, which he does, but he doesn't leave them without testimony. The man he's just healed becomes the first missionary that Jesus sends. And what a story of Jesus' power to save he has to tell. He knows that if Jesus saved him, well, then Jesus can save anyone. That's the second story. Let's turn to our third story, which is really two stories in one. It's a tale of two daughters. Verse 40 to 56. Here we see Jesus saved from disease and from death. He then travels back to the other side of the lake, back into Jewish territory, and there's a crowd there waiting for him. And there is yet another distressed figure who emerges from them and falls at Jesus' feet. Now this man, he's not a mess like the demon-possessed guy. His name's Jairus, and he's the synagogue leader. Now, the synagogue leader is is a man at the centre of community life. He's an important man, a powerful man, a respected man. He and his family would have been known uh, to everybody in the town that they lived in. But I guess because of that, everybody would know that not all is well in that household. His little girl, just 12 years old, she's sick, she's dying. Can you imagine what that must have been like? My, my daughter Layla is 12 years old. Can you imagine the, the desperation, the fear? And there's nothing you can do. It's just utterly hopeless. Except that Jesus is in town. Maybe if I can get to Jesus, maybe then he can save her. It's his only shot. He leaves his daughter's deathbed. He runs to find Jesus, falls on his knees before him and implores him to come to his help, his house to help her. And Jesus responds. He moves to go. But then there's an interruption. Verse 42. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. You know, there's just a lot of desperate people out there, isn't there? Yet another person in need. A woman with a problem. She's got a menstrual bleeding issue. Rather than going through the normal monthly cycle, it's been pretty much a constant bleed for 12 years. 12 years. Now, obviously, I'm not going to claim expertise on this issue, but here's what I know. I know that physically, this is likely to have made her incredibly anemic and weak. This is not an easy thing to cope with. 
And I also know that in the Old Testament law, it meant that she was richly unclean. She couldn't participate in the life of the community. She really had to stay in her house the whole time. And she wouldn't be able to keep secret what was going on either. Maybe a couple of weeks or months, people wouldn't notice. But 12 years, she can't come to worship in the synagogue. Maybe even Jairus had to turn her away. We discover that she's tried all the doctors, all the cures. She spent all her money in pursuit of fixing the problem. But she could not be healed by anyone, Luke says. She's at the end of the line. Life has her in checkmate, so to speak. This woman, she pushes her way through the crowd. She's probably shielding her face, I guess. She reaches out her hand and just with the tip of her finger, it just grazes the edge of Jesus' cloak. And we read verse 44, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And what power Jesus has. Now Jesus turns here and despite the fact that that it could have been anyone in such a packed crowd, that's pointed out to him, he won't let it lie until he finds the one who touched him. Now what's going through the woman's mind at this point? Well, she's probably hoping to sneak off without being noticed, but she knows the jig is up, verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And you can just think of her thoughts in that moment. You know, what's Jesus going to say? Perhaps even, is he going to take the healing away? But no, Jesus speaks kindly to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus wants her to know that he has decided to heal her because of her faith in him. But he also wants to know that he's done it gladly. She hasn't just sort of stolen this healing off him. And there's one thing more. It's public knowledge that she is unclean. And now everybody knows, because the crowd is all there, that she's been made clean by Jesus. I mean, what joy must have filled her heart. She's had physical healing. She's had restoration to community life. Her shame has been taken away. Her spiritual cleansing has come, so she can now return to worship. She's been given joy in the place of desperation. She's been given a whole new life. Jesus has power to save from disease. Our story's really racing along. And we can't forget, though we've had this interruption, we can't forget that there is still one more daughter to deal with. But it's too late. Word comes, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It's game over. And the messenger knows what everyone knows. There's no way out of death. No point bothering Jesus anymore. 
Okay, maybe Jesus can save from danger, and maybe he can save from demonic powers and from disease, but not this. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. I mean, what a thing to say. Have faith, I can fix this. Jesus gets to the house and he goes in with just a few followers and the parents of this girl. Verse 52, all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. It's an outrageous thing to say. The girl is dead on her bed. The people are crying and wailing all around her. And Jesus walks in and he tells everyone that the dead little girl is not dead but asleep. It's unbelievable behaviour. And they can't believe it either. Jesus is being ridiculous. He hasn't even been here. They've been here. They've seen what happened. They saw her breathe her last. What a fool. And they deride him and they laugh at him. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Jesus goes in to see the girl. The wailing ceases. And in the sudden quiet, he gently reaches out, takes her by the hand, and draws her up from the grip of death into new life. Jesus even has the power to wake people from death. And it's just as easy for him as waking people from sleep. What a saviour he is. I appreciate that this is a lot for us to take in. Four amazing, astonishing stories. And I wonder what you make of it all. Before we close this morning, let me just attempt to draw our thoughts together into three things that this story, these stories teach us. First thing, they show us that with Jesus, there is always hope. So let us trust him. Now this is a simple lesson for us, but one that we must grasp. There will be a point in life, if you've not already been there, or perhaps you're there right now, where it feels like there are no more moves where you reach the end of the line. And that may be caused by disaster, it may be caused by demonic oppression, it may be caused by disease or by death. But with Jesus, there is hope that there is a way out. Now by this we do not mean, of course, that harm will never come to us. Of course we don't mean that. We know that if we've lived for any period of time, and we know that we will all die. But here we see that even death has no power to harm those who are in Christ, who trust in Christ. Maybe that's what we need to hear today. Maybe that's something we need to store for the future. Jesus' question to the disciples is a question to all of us who believe in him. 
In a moment of trouble, he asks us, where is your faith? Do we trust him? He calls Jairus to faith in his power to save. He commends the bleeding woman for her faith in him to heal her. He seeks to bring about greater faith in him and in his power to save. And he will always prove faithful to us. So we must never think that there is no way out. There is always hope with Jesus. So we must trust him even through death. That's the first thing. Secondly, notice this. Notice the fullness of the salvation that Jesus offers. What do I mean by that? Well, in Luke, as we've seen over the last few weeks, Jesus has repeatedly claimed that he can offer forgiveness of sins to those who put their faith in him. That he will die to pay the penalty for sin so that we might be forgiven and so that we might have eternal life. That's the message of salvation that he preaches. But notice here that it's not just sin that he saves us from, but also the effects of sin. What do we say to someone who's, who's suffered those effects, the effects of the fallen world, who are distressed, who are despairing? Well, we can point to these stories and say that there is a new world coming. These stories point us to the new world that he will bring about where there will be no danger and no demons and no disease and no death. See, these stories are just for starters, aren't they? He really will bring an end to these things when he ushers in his kingdom. We can be certain of that. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus this morning, let me ask you, is, is that not what you long for? What you hope for? A world where these things will be no more. Because here we see a man who has the power to defeat these things. And he promises to those who put their faith in him that there will be a place in his new creation where these things are no more. Jesus saves from sin and its effects and will one day rid the world of them. That's the second thing. Finally, the third thing. Notice the confidence that these stories give us. Confidence to take the message of Jesus to the world. See, we go with his good news, but now we know that he backs up what he teaches. Now we know that there is no person beyond his saving reach. Man or woman, rich or poor, respectable with their life in order, or messed up with all kinds of struggles. Jesus will save who he came for, and nothing can stop him. So let's go with confidence that he's powerful to save. Let's pray and ask him for help. Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth of your word. 
In particular, this morning, we thank you for what it shows us of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his power to save. We praise you that he is powerful to save us from sin and powerful to save us from sin's effects, from this fallen creation, from disaster, from demonic power, from disease, and from death. Thank you that there will be a world because of what Jesus has done where these things are no more. We long to be there, but in the meantime, Lord God, would you give us confidence to take the message of Jesus Christ out so that others may join in that salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.